James. I'm Corinne. And I'm Justin. And on this episode, we are going to be talking about Batman The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller with Klaus Janssen and Lynn Varley. Keen listeners will notice that uh, Cleo's not here this week. Uh, She was captured by a Goblin King, so she's going to be back for a watch episode. We'll talk about all that a little bit later, but uh, for the time being, she's going to miss this in our passage episode. Um, But she will be be back safe and sound as soon as she, I don't know, braves the perils of young adulthood. Goes through a journey of self-discovery. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's going to be great. Um, but until then, uh, we talk about Batman. This is a weird book. Uh, I, I'm i really curious about uh, y'all's experience with it prior to this and reading it now, uh, especially because I know, Corinne, you're not really big into comics in general, yeah? That's true. Uh, comics are not really my thing. Um, I There's some comics that I... I'll occasionally buy one-off comics of particular, like, fandoms. For example, the Legend of Korra Turf Wars comics. I own both of those books and have read them. Um, But I'm not really a a comic, a classic comic book person. Um, I've read a bunch of webcomics, but it's very, very different from the superhero genre. The end. (laughs) (laughs) Just, yeah, I mean, you you don't like cape comics, but you kind of get into a lot of other stuff. It, It tracks. Um, I have read a lot of Cape comics. Um, yeah, I spent almost a year interning at Marvel back in the day. I've kind of always been a fan. Um, and that said, I had managed to never have read and also managed to keep myself in the dark of most of the major plot points of The Dark Knight Returns. Oh, yeah, I guess that is a good addition for me to add. I certainly knew that Frank Miller is a person um, and I certainly knew that he does Batman comics sometimes I had absolutely no familiarity with uh, with Dark Knight Returns I didn't know I know anything until James brought it up as a potential read for this topic I didn't even know it was about you know Batman and endings I don't know how much more <laughs> specifically I can talk about that uh yeah, but like outside of you know the the major fight toward uh, toward the end of of the story, that was that was really all that I knew about it. I that's really interesting. I I didn't know Justin that you had had not read this before. That's that's going to be cool. Um, so I I've actually read this a bunch of times before, um, which is interesting because every time I read it, I find something new that I admire about it and something new that I just hate about it. Um, so yeah, I've got a complicated relationship with this one. Have you ended up finding yourself liking things that you hated previously? No, never. Okay. Um, <laughs> it, the one exception to that was the first time I read this, I was in high school and I thought it was just kind of boring. Um, like there were it, not even cause I was like looking for cooler fights, but mainly just because um, I, it, the order in which I read a lot of Batman uh, made this kind of a weird one for me because it's something it, I guess this is the one thing that I've come to appreciate that I didn't love at the time. Uh, when I first read this, I didn't realize how many of the ideas that feel really central to Batman to me and like a kind of a, a more interesting exploration of Batman actually originated or if not originated, were popularized uh, here in in this run um, that a lot of other writers have have run with later. So to me, it felt a lot like it's just like, oh, yeah, Batman as an adult still haunted by, like, the death of his parents in, like, a way that can be represented through, like, actual psychological terms. Uh, that's not actually something that was explored a ton before this. So it that's the one thing that I've sort of come around a little bit on is just some of the stuff that felt kind of tired to me the first time I read it. I didn't realize how, how fresh it would have felt uh, back when they came out. So I, I give Miller a bit more credit for that. Um, but, yeah, we'll get into all of that a little bit later. Um, yeah, as far as, like, comics in general go, I, I read a fair amount of comics, but my big thing is I follow uh, creators, not characters. So I, like, I happen to have read a lot of Batman, but that's largely because uh, DC has a tendency to put a lot of uh, strong, interesting writers on Batman, and Batman has kind of proven himself to be an interesting canvas for a lot of people to do a lot of different things. Uh, so you happen to get a lot of... Uh, very kind of a lot of the big talented but also like established writers so when you're when you're kind of coming into comics it's a really good place to start when you're you want to discover some of the 
the big names and some of the places they did some of their really early cool work. Um, so I, I've read a lot of Batman through that, mainly just because there's a lot of Batman that happens to be uh, really interesting. Um, before we get too far in this, I'll give kind of a brief summary, um, especially uh, since, I guess, yeah, now that I think about it, there might be a significant number of people who aren't familiar with the plotline for Dark Knight Returns. Um, so Batman The Dark Knight Returns is a Batman story set in the future that is also the present because this was written in the 80s uh, and it's it's basically all still the 80s, just sci-fi year a little bit. Um, and in it, uh, Bruce Wayne is coming up on 50 and Batman's been retired for something like 10 years and it's kind of the extent where a lot of people, especially young people, have started to kind of forget about him. Um, and in that time, society has kind of has regressed a lot. Uh, a lot of the big supervillains seem to have sort of fallen back. A lot of them are in Arkham and have seemed to have just sort of given up on trying to escape without Batman there to oppose them when they get out. Um, but in return, this new kind of street gang has risen up called the Mutants, um, which are going to be interesting to talk about later. Um, and so sort of faced with this reality, Bruce Wayne is sort of, keeps telling himself that he's too old for this. He can't go out and do it. And sort of the, the beginning of the story is about him sort of getting pulled back into his life as Batman. And then he goes around solving everyone's problems with punching. Um, but yeah, so that's, I would say that's, that's about where I would draw the spoiler line for dark Knight returns. Is there anything else that, uh, you all think is important to bring in pre spoiler break? Uh, I, I mean, I think it's. I think we would talk about this pre-spoiler work anyway. It's probably worth uh, looking at the the parallel of Gordon's story in in this. You learn uh, very very close to the beginning that Gordon uh, knows that that Bruce is Batman, and they have a sort of relationship coming out of that. And Gordon himself is being forced to retire as Bruce is sort of unretiring. Yeah, Gordon, and they said Gordon is, what, coming up on 70? Yeah, uh, he's he's 70 and I, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, Gordon is, exactly, Gordon is sort of being pushed out just kind of because he's kind of getting a bit older and they're kind of talking about who the next police chief commissioner is going to be. One thing that I I always think is really interesting about this book as a whole, I, I really like talking about The Dark Knight Returns with people, um, I think largely because I'm so conflicted about a lot of it and that makes me really interested in what things spoke to other people and what things other people maybe didn't like as much because I think very much to its credit, uh, there's a lot there. It's it's a pretty dense book um, kind of visually and thematically. Uh, I think it's it's the kind of thing where sometimes I think that there are a lot of sort of loose ends thematically that he doesn't really tie up, but then I'll come back to it again later and read it. And I'll feel like those themes do actually feel sort of sufficiently fleshed out and explored. So I, it's in a lot of ways, it's really well crafted, but I also, I don't know. Like I, I feel like even just like the best way I can put it is just like the dialogue is terrible. Uh, right. Yeah. Like it, even just from like a really basic perspective, I feel like that's the best way to think about it, right? Where it's it's this really well-crafted, interesting thing. I don't, I very much don't agree with Frank Miller's politics in general, nor do I agree with his politics specifically as they are expressed in this book. Um, but like, I feel like the best way to describe it is it's this really well-crafted thing that you can really dive into and really gives back the more you look into it. But the actual process of reading it is painful sometimes. I kind of... The only part of it that I, I think I enjoyed was, like, chunks of Bruce's internal monologue through the thing. Because a, a lot of it is told through, like, what he's thinking moment to moment during, like, action sequences and stuff. And while a lot of that was, was about similar to the, the quality that you've kind of given it, um, I think there were moments that that stuff was was like good and interesting, and that was kind of about as far as I as I went with giving much credit there. There was a bunch of it where uh, I was like, "Man, this belongs on a Welcome to My Twisted Mind MySpace page." <laughs> a lot of it. 
Oh yeah. And it's, it's something that I always genuinely struggle with just because I, I mean, this was, it, this was before my time, right? Like this came out before I was born. I, I don't have like the full context. It's kind of like what I was talking about earlier with that notion of the parts of it that I, I understand now with hindsight felt a lot fl- fresher at the time than they did to me now. Um, but, you know, you go back to a lot of stuff around this time and there's that part of me that's just like, well, you know, but there's a lot of stuff with, you know, pretty shit dialogue around that. And it's like, well, I guess that was just kind of the standard. But then you remind yourself, it's like, no, but not everything. Like there was stuff where the dialogue wasn't garbage. Like it, I don't know. It's a little bit hard. It definitely kind of reeks of that. Just like it super edgy, grim, dark kind of stuff that again, I, I try and remind myself it maybe felt a bit better then than it does now. I can't really speak to it, but I, I try to not, I don't know, maybe that did feel more interesting at the time and everyone has just pulled from that since and that's why it just feels so tired and dumb, but... Yeah, I definitely think it's something that, like, hasn't aged as well as a whole as some of the, like, ideas and concepts have. And, I mean, even then, like you said, the ideas and concepts themselves have, like, become such a strong part of Batman canon that they're they're even harder to appreciate. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. Um, I, I Corinne and I were talking about this uh, the other day, and it is one of the things where I feel like there are some things that are are good and well done and remain good and well done and interesting. There are some things that just are bad and were bad, and then there are other things that probably were fine at the time but have aged poorly. I will say, probably unsurprising for anybody who is even remotely aware of Frank Miller, I've screenshotted I screenshotted several panels uh, where my eyes like rolled out of my head at the sexism. Um, there were there were times when I was just when they rolled and they didn't fall out of my head, but I specifically screenshotted the times where they did roll out of my head. Right. Um, it was a mess to find them. Yeah. 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 Frank Miller is not good in a lot of ways. I think that despite everything I just said, however, um, and I don't know whether this is dipping into spoiler territory, so I'll, we can cut this if it is. Uh, the 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 new Robin was probably my favorite character in the whole thing. Agreed. So I, I do think we should just draw the spoiler line kind of soon, just because I think that'll make it a lot easier to talk about a lot of things. Um, but yeah, that's absolutely one of the characters that I do want to to get into. And it's almost one of the things that makes this whole thing like harder for me. Cause there are, there are moments where I can convince myself that there is a slightly more positive reading of this. Um, and then I just end up confused and conflicted again. Um, but yeah, so let's, let's draw the, the spoiler line here. Let's do just kind of a quick um, sort of, would you recommend kind of thing? And then we'll, we'll get into some actual spoilery details. Uh, for me, at least, I think this is for anybody remotely interested in, in Cape comics or particularly in Batman, I think this is a worthwhile, you know, at least once kind of read. Uh, we talk about a lot as sort of a relic of ideas that have become more common, but as the either originator or popularizer, it's, it's very much a relic that's worth sort of seeing and experiencing. And there's enough good and interesting here that I think people should should pick it up. Um, I will say that I, I am I'm glad I read it. Uh, as somebody who doesn't read comics not, not really because I don't like them or because I don't think I would like them just because uh, they tend to be so huge that I never know where to start. And I never know, I don't know how to start and I don't know how to continue. Um, So the level of effort to entry is always a bit too high for me. Um, I'm glad I read it. I I think that it was certainly interesting for all of its flaws. Uh, However, I don't think it really works as an introduction to the Batman universe because I've never read another Batman comic. And I very, very fortunately have been... You know, I've known enough people into comics and I've heard bits and pieces of other like comic book storylines and other like Batman mythos and just been inundated with the general like Batman mythology that all of pop culture is saturated with enough 
to understand the dynamics at play. Um, however, the the book itself it sort of it sort of demands that the reader be very familiar with uh, with Batman and with his history and with his history with his friends and, and his villains and all that sort of stuff to to sort of appreciate the gravity of a lot of events that occur. Um, and I think that if you're not familiar with that, it's it's not going to land as well. That's a very good point. I I'm going to take a little bit of a cop out on this one because I feel like for me the big thing is you already know if you want to read this, um, and that that at the end of the day is kind of the biggest barometer. It's such a it's kind of so widely considered such a monumental work. Um, I feel like there are probably very few people who are. Because it, it, like you said, Corinne, because it's not a great first Batman thing, um, it's the kind of thing where you're either already interested enough in Batman that you came across this as something that was recommended to you and started thinking about like, oh, maybe that would be interesting. Uh, Or you probably weren't necessarily aware of it and there are probably better places to start. Um, So it's a little bit of a cop-out answer. But yeah, I I think, Corinne, you're exactly right when it kind of comes down to it. That background helps a lot. I don't think it's strictly necessary to get all, to get at a lot of the ideas. I think kind of like what you said, a lot of the the stuff that everything that you need to like understand the the basis of the story and what it feels like Miller is trying to get at, uh, you probably have just via cultural osmosis. Um, but if if you really want to sit with it, yeah, you're you're probably already familiar enough with Batman to have put this on your list or not. Um, so I don't know if my opinion is going to sway anyone one way or the other. Uh, if people are looking for like first Batman things, um, I personally really like uh, long Halloween and year one. Uh, I think year one was also Frank Miller um, and is less shitty than this. Uh, <laughs> if, if I remember right, uh, long Halloween though is my like just favorite Batman comic um handful of other ones are are up there grant morrison's stuff in general is really good not a good intro um but is strong but anyway if if someone is looking for like a, a good first thing uh year one and long halloween might be good places to get started it might even get you a lot of what you need for this one to uh to sink in a bit better um and if i remember right i want to say that miller wrote this and then year one uh, kind of in close proximity to one another. And so he sort of did it as a closing out of Batman's story uh, and then sort of a rebirth with um, kind of going back and telling that origin story again. Um, it was kind of a neat thing. I think they were practically back-to-back because year one was early early 87, and I think this was late 86. Yeah, um, which is kind of a neat thing. A- another one of those things where it's just like, yep, that's a... That's a cool, interesting thing to do that a really shitty guy was smart and creative enough to put together. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so that's my would you recommend. So I think we should draw the spoiler line here. Yeah. Um, speaking very briefly, we don't really have a what's coming next because if, if you've been listening to our last topic, you already know that this is our, this is our last topic. Um, and that's why we're talking about endings. So we don't have a topic coming up after this. Uh, However, this topic is going to be uh, this, Batman. And next, we're actually going to be doing Passage because we moved our episodes around a little bit to accommodate Cleo not being available to record today. So next up is going to be Passage by Jason Rohr. Uh, And after that, we're going to be doing Labyrinth, uh, directed by Jim Henson. And then we're going to be closing everything out with our endings topic episode, and that'll be that. Um, But for now, uh, let's, let's talk some Dark Knight Returns spoilers. Um, considering that, you know, talking about, talking a bit about Robin, uh, was what sort of brought us to the spoiler break, uh, I sort of want to continue on that thread and, and say that, um, the new commissioner and, uh, and the new Robin, despite, it, it feels like they were almost, like, accidentally, like, very good characters. Um, I, I don't think that, I think that there are... I think that each time we saw, like, Frank Miller deliberately put thought into them, it was terrible. Um, But when they were just sort of, like, you know, 
filling a role in the story and he wasn't thinking of them directly as women, they were great. <laughs> it's it's one of the things, like, almost to, uh, like, to Carrie's credit, I guess, like, the inter- the thing I thought was most interesting was that Bruce as Batman, being written by Frank Miller, just treated Carrie like he treated all of the Robins. Like, it was very much like, a, here's what I'm going to tell you to do, I need you to do this, I need to rely on you, and then they would listen, like, you know, she would listen to an extent, and then she would break the rule in order to do something that was, like, necessary and important, and he would, like, show, you know, whatever amount of appreciation Batman's going to show for something like that, and then they continue on. And it, like, very much reminded me of, like, sort of the way every Robin relationship is. And the fact that this relationship wasn't different or weird or overprotective or, like, all the things you would expect coming from, from Miller, uh was just kind of interesting to me. I didn't love this panel that I screenshotted. Uh, yeah. Ah, yes. <laughs> it's, uh, that, that's, yep. Auditory medium, theater of the mind. Yep. This is working great. Um, yeah, for, for reference, do you want to you give that a quick description? Sure thing. I will give this a quick description. A, um, a, uh, Definitely naked Batman um, is standing uh, after being gravely wounded and rescued by New Robin, while New Robin leaps into his arms uh, uh, while showing her 13-year-old ass to the camera. Yeah, it's not a great one. Yep. And that was the last time Frank Miller thought about the fact that Robin was a girl, and then it was great after that. Yeah, I it it really is one of it. I thought about this primarily not on this reading, but on the one before, um, where up until then I really just kind of thought of this as having just like a, a pretty shitty treatment of of women in general, which I still think is true. Um, but it wasn't until then that I saw kind of what you're bringing up, Corinne, in that the new police commissioner and the new Robin, both actually exactly like what you said. When when it feels like Miller forgets that he thinks of women in a certain way, he, like, accidentally writes them as strong characters. Um, which I think sort of, it gives the the whole story kind of an interesting, kind of like an interesting undertone, because Miller is clearly disgusted with the state of society. Um, and his views feel very old man yelling at Cloud. But... <laughs> yeah. And we can, I, I want to get into those later um, because it's a bunch of, I don't know, it's some, it, frankly, it hits the point where I'm just like, I, I'm just always going to disagree with Frank Miller's politics in a million ways. Um, but this book is largely about Frank Miller's politics, I think. So that's, that's fun. Um, but there is kind of this weird implication that this previous generation of almost exclusively men has fucked up pretty bad. Uh, but that there is this hope for the next generation, which does seem to have like women in positions of power, even though you kind of get the impression that mm, he might not have actually meant to say that, but it, it feels like there's a reading there that you can, that you can pull from it. Um, now given the key thing that both of these, uh, women in positions of power need to do in order for the book to start uh, treating them with respect and the the way that the way that you see that they deserve their position is that they trust Batman uh, as opposed to trusting the system so the the important thing for a woman to have power in this book is that she trusts that Batman is the sole force of good in the world that's a bigger problem throughout the entire book because this entire book's morality is everything is busted except for a hyper-masculine, uh, violent vigilante. And that's the only person who can set the world right from these, like, wimpy, like, left-wing liberals and these, like, warmongering right-wing conservatives. Uh, and just, like, the the youths of today and, you know, the youths, they're terrible. They're not even people anymore, right? They're mutants now. And, oh, the youths. Um, and then you've got someone like Gordon who just, like, 
is also treated as like a hero. But like the thing that makes him a hero and better than anybody else is that he's a cop who's very willing to just shoot people. And wow, fuck that shit. It, yeah. This entire this entire book is very much wrapped up in, oh, there's this whole conversation about whether Batman is like good or not. But at the end of the day, the book's morality is that Batman is always right. Whatever it is he has to do, he as a powerful man who is bigger than the rest of us, like Roosevelt. For those of you listening, <laughs> I roll. I think the mic picked it up, but who can say? Um, it. Like, it, you can see Miller's politics here are very much that there are a handful of powerful men who have the capability to do what's right, even if that means doing something that's wrong. And that's what we really need, this populist leader who does what it needs to happen. I very strongly disagree. That said, I think he's a good storyteller. Bad dialogue writer, but a good storyteller. And yeah, so I definitely think that he, like, accidentally writes these two female characters who do seem to be inheriting the world. Yeah, here's here's uh, some, I guess, textual support for some interesting things that, you know, that sort of dovetail into what you were talking about with, um, or I guess what we have been talking about with the, the women being interesting and, and all that stuff. Uh, there's another panel that I, God, I sure did love, where um, <laughs> where they they announce the the who they announce who is going to be the next police commissioner and then we see Gordon reacting to it and Gordon is looking at the TV and he goes a woman Christ almighty and here's the thing here's the thing i feel like what makes uh i forget the police commissioner's name um the new one the new one I, they only stated it a few times and i honestly i think it's like Ellen Yequin Yes, yeah. something like that. Yankel, maybe. Yankel, maybe. Yeah, I, I'll I'll double check it while we're while we're here. But anyway, uh, I f- I feel like her role in the story was to be somebody who came in with strong opinions opposing Batman, and with a stellar record and a like a, a like a dark horse pick. I feel like you know that character needed to fulfill that role in the story. And then I feel like Frank Miller wanted to emphasize how, you know, you know, how crazy of a, of a choice and emphasize how, dis- like, how disappointed that, you know, Commissioner Gordon would be with the choice by making her a woman. I feel like these two things accidentally coincided to end up with a woman with very interesting views and who had a, a really interesting, like, character arc uh, throughout the, the thing. Solely because he wanted that panel of Gordon going, a woman, Christ almighty. And everything else was just the, the needs of the story made the, this character, who was a woman for that panel alone, into an interesting character. Uh, last name, Yindel. Y-I-N-D-E-L. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that Frank Miller set out to write an interesting female character. I find it hard to believe. It's, yeah, no, I, I'm very much in that boat as well. It, it's hard because I... I generally subscribe very strongly to kind of the notion of of a dead author, right? Like, I, I don't like to look at a work and try and then assume the author's politics from it uh, or their opinions or to say that they put this in or that was an accident. Um, but the thing that's really weird is that uh, Frank Miller wears those politics so on his sleeve that it becomes really hard not to. Like, it, for all the reasons why I like to avoid that, because I don't want to make assumptions, I, in this context, we we do have enough information to make some pretty educated guesses there. So, yeah, I really very much come into that same position, where it's like, yeah, it really does seem that the best parts of that aspect of this story really do seem to be accidental. Or even if, like, it, I, I'd almost wonder if so he can have that panel with gordon is almost being like is almost giving him too much credit because there's another part of me that wonders if he also was just like you know what the audience would never believe would be a good choice for police commissioner a woman christ almighty (laughs) exactly like it like that it might genuinely be that in that moment he wants gordon to be our stand-in and i don't 
know if that's necessarily true, but Gordon is absolutely painted as one of our moral compasses in this story. It, you know, he has flaws, but his flaws are things that even then, like his smoking, right? But then we see Yindel, like, smoking a cigarette later, and it's like, oh, no, we see those things. She's becoming more like Gordon, even though she she gave it up. Um, it We see people adopting those flaws. We see him as this, like, not inevitable, or I guess a bit inevitable, right? That he was made who he is by the realities of the city. And this very much paints the people who know the realities of the city, you know, as as more real, better, more worth listening to. They they understand what it is to be threatened by crime, and that's why they know it's okay for, like, the sons of the Batman to just kill people. It, like, it's, it's really hard to make the argument that, that the book isn't making that argument. But, yeah, so I think you're completely right that all of the positives when it comes to that kind of representation in the story do seem to be purely accidental. Yeah. Because all of Gordon's interactions with Yendel, especially, like, later on when he was, like, giving her advice and, like, you know, making speeches and everything, was all really good stuff. And the the sort of, like, no-nonsense, like, transfer of power from old to new, like listen, like, here's, here's what I, you know, here's what I wish someone had told me, or here's what I'm gonna, you know, here's the advice I can leave you with. All of that was great. Like, the book, at that point, it, it, like, had forgotten that Yindel was a woman and was just like, here is the new police commissioner. This is the conversation that needs to happen. And, like, that was awesome. The, the introduction of each of these female characters is like, these are women! Disparage them! And then, you know, the needs of the story and the, the pacing of the story didn't allow to us to dwell on the fact that they were women after the fact. Yeah, like, if this was if this was a little more meandering, I would have expected, like, one of those, like, newscast segment breaks to be, like, two people debating the fact that a woman was the commissioner. Like, I could have... Se- I, like, I saw yeah. it coming, and it just never came because Miller didn't want to devote time to that over them debating Batman some more. Yeah. Yeah. It's... It's a really interesting thing. I It's part of why I'm so conflicted about the book as a whole. I feel like that's a good example of a lot of the stuff that's there. Where it's like, well, on one hand, this feels gross. But on the other hand, if you push on it a bit, like there's there's a worthwhile insight or conversation to have about what you're finding there. Uh, to, to run a little bit more even with um, kind of like sex and gender within within this, one of the characters that... I, it, one of the other ways that I think that really makes it into a lot of the book and part of why it, it feels so, um, it, it feels not safe, but correct to say that these are values of Miller's that got put into these places and the, the better stuff feels accidental, um, I think has a lot to do with the way that he depicts, uh, Batman is very masculine um, and then later, uh, someone like, say, I guess say specifically the Joker, um, as like really kind of playing up sort of the notion of making him kind of effeminate. Uh, in a lot of Batman comics, like Joker's face just is his face. In this one, very specifically, he has white skin and green hair, but the rest of uh, things like his lips are are makeup. Like you see him without his makeup on. Um, and there are scenes where you see him putting on makeup and things like that. He uses like the lipstick that he was wearing as like poison. Like it, he re- it Miller really ascribes a lot of these like it. He makes part of the Joker's villainy that he is feminine in this way. And it's weird little stuff like that that it really feels like just sort of pervades the rest of the book. Um, kind of your standard run of the mill, just like. Miller dialogue where just rape comes up a lot in that really shitty yeah. 80s way. Like, it, it, it's all those weird little things and just even, like, the mutant leader at these big, like, plays of masculinity. And there's part of me that always wants to read the book as critical of these hyper-masculine characters, but I think that, I for me, Joker is always the one that really kills that for me. 
is that at the end of the day, the biggest like villain in the book, it's like, eh, no, like it, even his suit looks like he's wearing like shoulder pads as opposed to um, like Bruce's suits or anyone like that, where they just look big and burly. It's, I don't, that, I feel like that's one of the big ones where I'm still waiting to find like an accidental good in it. And I, I just, I don't think it's there. I think at the end of the day, it's just really celebratory of that kind of bullshit. Yeah, I mean, queering villains to make them abhorrent to the mass audience is nothing new. Oh, absolutely. So, and I mean, it's it's maybe slightly more subtle with with Joker, and I, uh, very very slightly. But the the example that I thought you might have been getting to was the very minor appearance of of Bruno. Um. Who's just like the random like liquor store robber that has grabbed a couple of mutant former mutant henchmen and is you know very briefly stopped by Batman? It's just like I don't know. I feel like every every other thing that like I I, I find myself taking issue with in this, I, I can usually find at least some part of it that makes that interesting, and this one has just never been the case. Yeah. Uh, one thing, before we get too far away from some of the, the really bad art, one of my favorite things about this is that occasionally the art is hilarious, but it's almost always in the bits where uh, Batman and Robin are going somewhere. Uh, a lot of the shots of them, like, in the air, they're just in completely nonsense poses that look like they're just, like, posing to be awesome. Uh, a lot. Yeah, this is this one I like a lot. Yeah, where they're flying through the air and they're both just kind of doing like karate pose. Like and which specifically I I say because it's the 80s and that meant something then. I think I, this one like I think anybody who's read the book and is listening to this episode is probably very capable of picturing this panel that I just pulled out because it's like the it's like the panel that people use when they're talking about like this book and Batman and and Carrie Kelly. It's just like, here they are, actioning. <laughs> um, there's another one that I like a lot that, that I just found. This is uh, Batman and Robin running. This is as they're leaving uh, Selena's apartment um, before, like right before they run into the cops. Uh, I, I don't have a page number for anyone with the book. Oh, it's page 136 for anyone who happens to have the same edition as me, Handy. Um, but... It, it's they're just in the bottom right corner of the page. They've just untied Selena, um, and they're they're running away. And I think yeah, I, yeah, I have, we're I have looking it at it. It it's just such a goofy like it, like it looks like something out of a like a newspaper comic parody of Batman. You know, just like quick Robin to over there, and he's got like thermite <laughs> coming out of his belt for no reason that ends up being relevant in the next panel, but. There, there's a handful of those. I actually, by and large, really like the the art in this. Not always what it is depicting, but at least I, I like the way that it was drawn most of the time. Um, but yeah, every so often you get something like that that's just a gem. Uh, Miller, and I just, the only things that I vastly did not appreciate was whenever Miller decided to do a close-up of anybody. Because apparently Frank Miller thinks the human face is the most grotesque thing in the world. You know, I watched this anime recently that operated on the same premise. <laughs> it was a treat. It was one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Devil Man Crybaby. Nope. One thing that I, I do think is interesting, it's this really is one of the big ones that I feel like... Um, feels tired when you've read other Batman uh, just because it's it's something that has been explored almost kind of ad nauseum at this point. Yeah. But just kind of the notion of like, oh, but Batman does bad things, but for good reasons. What does that make him a good person or a bad person? And oh, who knows? Like maybe maybe there is no such thing as just a good person or a bad person and it weird stuff like that. And it feels it feels pretty tired at this point, but it is one it is something that I it has been made much clearer to me since my first time reading this that that's something that was that felt a lot newer at when this was originally published. Um, I still think the comparison to FDR is weird, but <laughs> I, 
I at least see where he's going with it. And to Miller's credit, this is something that I didn't really pick up on as much until this time. Uh, bringing in an explicit World War II parallel makes me feel a lot better about the implicit World War II parallels earlier, where you've got, uh, like, the mayor and his staff sort of looking to negotiate with the mutant gang and feeling it's like, no, these are obviously bad guys. And it, that feeling a lot like uh, England with the Nazis during World War II, where you have these big parts of parliament that are arguing in favor of peace talks with Hitler as opposed to uh, kind of Churchill and a small a small other set who are trying to make the argument that, no, he's Hitler, and that that was not a super persuasive argument at the time for for England in the situation they were in, um, and knowing that that meant making sacrifices. However, the thing that I think is very funny is that at the end of the day, Miller does not compare Batman to Churchill, who he seems much more in line with because these were the conversations happening in England at the time. He compares him to Roosevelt because America. But beside the point. And even then, I think the Churchill comparison is a weird comparison. But it at least, it, I hadn't really picked up on the fact that it does feel like all that's intentional, which I, which I thought was kind of cool. That was my big, my big thing from this reading. Uh, I guess to sort of bring us around to endings, um, I, I appreciated that this being, you know, like an offshoot of Batman being a set of small graphic novels that, that Miller could kind of do what he wanted. And so we got the kind of closure that doesn't exist in Cape comics, uh, specifically with, with Joker. Right. And we get that, uh, did, was this, this is pre killing joke, right? Or is this post killing joke? I believe this is pre, I want to say killing joke was later in the eighties or the nineties or like just post year one, but let me check that. Yeah. Killing joke is 88. Okay. So, you know, I mean, spoilers for killing joke, I, I guess, but I think we're, we're past the, the, the spoiler statute of limitations here, but there's the implied ending of Killing Joke that, like, that Joker dies. But it's it's heavily implied, right? And in, uh, here, in Dark Knight Returns, we get Joker's death. And we get that, like, moment of, of Batman really grappling with the idea of, like, I'm going to do this thing. I really intend to do this thing. And then not doing it. And then Joker laughing at him and, like, supernaturally committing suicide. It's very vague and strange. Um, but, like, getting that sequence at all in a Batman comic is so, like, even now is still something that just, it's not, it doesn't happen. The whole point of Joker is that he's the representation of the fact that Batman will never cross that line. Yeah, it's it's why I think that continuity is the worst thing that happened to comic books ever because it stops people from being able to tell good stories. Um, the fact that comics need to return to the status quo because you've got a bunch of people who still somehow think that there is any notion of continuity across a hundred years of Batman comics the notion that anyone would cling to that is ridiculous to me, just absolutely ridiculous. And it's holding back the medium as a whole. Yeah. I mean, the fact that any time that a creator tries to, to break the status quo and to seriously change things and suffers such ridiculous blowback from this like vocal, some sized group of the community, it's, well, but even just that it puts an onus on the publisher to want to maintain the status quo yeah. because they need to be able to keep selling that thing. You know, it, it it's why the whole notion of like, oh, like Wolverine's going to die just feels stupid because it's like, yeah, but then you're going to bring him back again for no reason because Wolverine is a popular character. And it would it would be so much more interesting if just Wolverine could die in any given story arc and then the next story arc is just unrelated to that one or that you know one writer can go for a long period of time and make continuity within their story arc um it's i don't know it's it's a 
challenging thing. It's one of my big frustrations with comics. It's also part of why I like to follow creators, not characters. Yeah. Because I don't think that, I mean, it, you could stick any, you know, you could put a bad writer on a good character and that's not going to make it a good story. Like I, it doesn't make sense to me. And I think, I think the best writers sort of do what you're talking about, right? Where they, they have these long established runs on these characters and they sort of create their own continuity that they get to play with and, and have fun with that may or may not become like a major part of the canon and the larger continuity. Yeah. Or they'll do something kind of like this where they frame it as like, oh, this is a side story or, oh, this is like something else. This is non-canonical or anything like that. And that'll let them do whatever they want. And that creates a lot of freedom there. But you do get the it. But the reality is that someone always needs to be writing canonical Batman stories. You know, yeah. Like it, it's. I don't know. I it's something that I I actively like find very frustrating. I think it's very limiting. Um, it's a lot of why I I read arcs and creators, not longer things than that. Um, yeah, it is something that I, I do think is nice about something like this is that it can be self-contained, it can make those choices, and it just needs to deal with those choices. It also means that the onus is on that story to make that event meaningful. And in this, Miller does make Joker's death meaningful because that means something about who Batman is within the context of this story. His end isn't just, and then Joker dies, and the next person who writes this has to deal with that. I'm out, and just drops the mic and makes it someone else's problem. Like, he needs to wrestle with that and needs to make it something that he did as opposed to just, like, a flash-in-the-pan, like, kind of blockbuster moment to get you to read his comic because significant plot happens. Yeah. And I, to to talk about the, the sort of the specifics of it, like, the like Batman, the, the the one thing that I really loved is that there's the moment uh, where the David Letterman, whatever his actual name was, uh, is interviewing Joker and he just he asks him how many people he's killed, which is fucking ridiculous. But you know, there's that whole thing where he's like, oh, you know, I don't I don't keep count, and this whole thing, and and he there's this internal monologue of Joker's later when he's like, but I know Batman does. And that is paid, like literally paid off when Batman rattles off an actual number in his own internal monologue. When he's like, there's a moment when he's chasing after him and he kills two more people, and Batman's like, now that's six hundred something, right? And, and he, he has this add them to the list, yeah. And he and he has the the actual count that he mentions at one point as he's like chasing Joker down, and and it's this we see Batman like really actually struggling with the idea that like he really should given everything that he believes in, he really should just kill this man. And it's it's something that's almost like glazed over in all these other Batman stories because if Batman truly grappled with it, there's no I feel like there's no question that he would make the decision to off the Joker. Yeah, I mean there's it it's one of those things that really is hard because since this, uh it's become I frankly I think it's become way overdone. The oh man Joker did something really fucking crazy this time. Is this going to be the time Batman kills him? Maybe, maybe not. What do you know? And it's just so many people then deal with that. Like it, I mean, and the thing that's hard there is it feels like the big question there is it's a debate about capital punishment, right? Like it feels like that's like, that's what that's about. It's always hard because I, I never get the impression. It's one of those things that is never, I don't know. I feel like I'm still waiting for a writer who's going to make like a, a really interesting statement with it as opposed to asking a question that a lot of people have asked. But it's, yeah, it really is one of these. I'd be really curious about how many instances of that uh, you see prior to this. Yeah, there's there's a lot that you need to be able to contextualize and it makes this, parts of this harder to look at in relation to everything we know like now. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what I frankly think is just the most like kind of over hyped part of of this book uh which is the batman versus superman fight um uh frankly i really don't want to talk about this for super long because i don't think there's a ton to say uh it really does feel like it's that like oh yeah conflict of ideals whatever but also it's the oh man batman and superman are gonna fight and I don't really give a shit. This is, I mean, this is probably a kind of mean parallel, but 
this is this is this big hyped moment. Batman and Superman are going to fight, and it was a really underwhelming thing to me. And I, I I don't know how much of that is that like, you know, comic artists and writers of today have gotten like the medium has improved to an extent where like action in comics is better and more interesting than it might have been back then. But I feel like that's not giving enough credit to other good comics of the era. But this this is a big thing and it's this hyped thing and Batman and Superman are going to fight and it's going to be crazy and it's going to be awesome and I was not that impressed and it, it felt a lot like um, Batman or Superman where it was the same kind of thing it was this incre- it was this big hyped up moment and there's no way to make it all that interesting and so it just ends up being incredibly underwhelming or, or, or dull even. Yeah I, I I think one of the big things for me is just that I, I... I don't think that Frank Miller does like fight scenes super well, which I don't have a yeah. problem with because I frankly don't really give a shit about fight scenes in comic books. But the thing for me is that it does end up going for about 20 pages. Maybe, maybe a bit less, maybe closer to 15, but I mean, that's almost half of that volume, right? Like that's, and would be a traditional comic book. Um, Cause these are like, this is like four issues, but it's four double length issues. Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting thing, um, partially because it feels kind of inevitable uh, with the way that the rest of the book is set up. Um, but also, I think I this is another thing where I really just haven't like settled on how I feel yet, because part of me feels like it's supposed to be underwhelming. It's supposed to feel like two old guys just like slowly just punching each other out on the street. And because Batman goes into this with the intent of losing, right? You know, he's he's trying to fake his death. He's committing suicide via Superman. And it's... That's the big reason why I don't really mind so much that it feels underwhelming. Again, because like I, I, I don't want it to be overwhelming. But um, I don't know. I... There are a lot of things that I like about it ideologically. I could just never, like, actually find that thing that makes it feel really special, you know? I'm not too up on... I, you know... As much as I've experienced uh, Batman via cultural osmosis, uh, I have not experienced nearly as much Superman via cultural osmosis. Um, So, I don't know how this general read is for either of you, but Superman felt weird like he was written really weird he was in my opinion at least i i I just think that the whole thing is kind of ham-fisted when it comes to this character is a symbol for this and superman and just feels like a symbol for an exceptional the book feels like it's really interested in exceptional individuals should just run everything um and superman is the example of an exceptional individual who has allowed himself to be controlled by someone else and isn't like master of his destiny. And so he is just this like weird lap dog. Um, the big thing for me is that Superman's not a character in this, right? He's a, he's a metaphor and it just doesn't feel like a super interesting one. Yeah. Miller just kind of bends the character of Superman as, as you or I would know him into this like super weird shape. I think you're, you're super right. I'm super right. Yep. I, the biggest thing for me, I guess, about Superman in this is that uh, he feels kind of inevitable. Like, looking at the rest of the story, it feels like Miller wants to tell. It feels like the kind of thing where there wouldn't be a way to tell that story without including Superman uh, and without having him, like, having sort of, like, bent the knee to the government. And it, the place that he's in feels like the place that he has to be in for Miller's story under kind of by Miller's thesis. Um, And then that ultimately that conflict between the sort of individual who is controlled by government powers versus the one who won't let himself be leashed and blah, blah, blah. And oh, so he needs to like fake his death and operate in the shadows and blah, and all of the stuff that now just feels like really kind of hokey Batman stuff. Um, Because again, thesis of the book is that the government is incapable of actually bettering the lives of people um so yeah that was the big thing for me is i he felt weird but also it was the kind of thing where i was like yeah but i at least understand why 
he kind of had to be that way. Like the, the book would feel weird without that to at least like make a straw man argument against, I guess. I, I wanted to bring up before um, the, the f- format of the storytelling in the book, uh, because there is a lot of, uh, you know, like, newscaster talk show you know panels in this a lot of time is spent looking at people talking about batman in this book yeah it's really i mean in terms of like comic book storytelling like you know sequential art it's really strange it feels very much like a television or movie trope that miller is trying to like jam into a graphic novel yeah, and I actually, it's something that I think he does a really good job with. It's something that I remember I really did not like the first time I read it, but it's something that I've liked more and more over time. Um, again, it feels like a little bit of a ham-fisted way to deal with just like, oh, yeah, the media is everywhere. Everyone's all watching TV now. And when I was a kid and men were men and women were women, that was less of a thing because TV didn't exist yet. Um, but we're better people because even if we had had it, we wouldn't have watched as much of it as you are. But yeah, it, it feels like kind of the rough equivalent of anything today that like makes a face tweet or it, whatever their generic social media platform, like a big part of their story. Um, but yeah, I, it, it feels very odd that there are not a lot of other books that have tried to, to do that in the same way. Yeah, I agree. It felt interesting to me, again, not someone who reads a ton of comics. Um, it was a surprising, it was surprising. Uh, I, I remember when I was first, when it first was like happening and I realized that it was like happening more frequently, I was like, oh, this is interesting. And then, and then I realized that it was going to persist through the whole book. And then I started looking at it, I guess, a bit more critically and, uh, because it it became you know I realized oh this isn't like a gimmick to set up the world this is this is how Frank Miller intends to meditate you know in quotes uh, as it were on the various conflicting viewpoints that surround the 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 complicated character and the the moral choices he has set up problem being is that Frank Miller has already made his decisions about what is not just what he thinks but what the right thing is and it ends up in this weird place where a lot of the arguments that don't agree with him are delivered by people who he has framed as being like jokes of people uh and i thought that that was honestly that was a real shame because something uh something like this and maybe not in comic book format or maybe in comic book format could be really interesting if you, you know, if you took time to really set up and and deliver the the arguments of each side of of the of the conflict. Um and I, I think it's a real shame that Miller, I guess he had his ideas and you know that's fine, but he came into the story already telegraphing to the readers what the right answer was. And I think that it could have been a very, very different and really much better story if we had gotten serious arguments from serious people delivered with serious dialogue. Because, you know, every time the psychologist spoke, you know, you wanted to just, like, laugh at them and slap them in the face because they were made to be jokes. And you know they have interesting things to say if you if you don't set out you know from the beginning to to treat them as jokes and to treat their arguments as invalid um so really cool idea in my opinion completely wasted on somebody who had an agenda with uh, who had an agenda and a moral viewpoint to to sort of get across from the beginning unless anyone has anything that specifically should be in this episode I think we should end with that because I think that's the best summation of The Dark Knight Returns I've heard. It's All right. Really interesting idea and structure. Unfortunate that it was done by someone who clearly wanted to come in with it, pushing a very specific agenda that they had from the beginning. First Batman comic I've ever read, and I'm nailing it. Really good at this. Yeah. I, yeah. 
I, I'm still even laughing at just like the Arkham home for the emotionally troubled as opposed to the Arkham asylum for the criminally insane. Yeah. Um, just, yeah, all the ways that he, he sets up that psychologist as like this like weak lefty liberal kind of quack of a guy. And it's just like, I, I'm not even going to try and elaborate. Yeah, you, you, you said it best. You said it right. Great. Sweet. So yeah, let's go out on a high note. That's been uh, The Dark Knight Returns. Coming up next is going to be Passage by Jason Rohr. Slight change to our usual order, but in case you forgot uh, 40 minutes ago in this podcast, that's what we're going to do. Um, then after that, Labyrinth uh, back with Cleo, and then the topic, and that'll be it. But until then, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Read, Watch, Play. If you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is tell a friend about the show. You can also rate and review the podcast on iTunes. If you want to find us on social media, you can follow us at RWP Podcast on Twitter and like us at Facebook.com slash RWP Podcast. For our watch episode, which is actually going to be a little bit later, we'll talk about that. Oop, I just hit my cord, so I bet that sounded really bad. I heard it. Balls. Yeah, I bet you did. <laughs>